Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. Good morning. Welcome. Good to be with you all. My name is Tom Lewis. On the board, no, it's not up there. My name is Tom Lewis. Take my word for it, even if it's not up there. Um, nice to be with you. The uh, fall of 1994, my wife and I bought our first home in uh, Lexington, South Carolina, and we, we qualified, we didn't have a lot of money, we qualified for a mortgage just right above the sale price, and we said, oh, this is great, everything's fine, and then we, the house was inspected and found out it needed a new roof, which was going to be about $5,000, and the owner said to me, no problem, I'll get it done, and you can just add it on the mortgage. I said, no, you don't understand. I don't qualify for a mortgage that much. So he says, what do you want to do? I said, well, you know, I've helped my friends roof a house before. I said, would you let my buddies and I roof the house, right? And then if for some reason the sale doesn't go through, you just pay us for the materials, the labor be free. He says, okay. And we did that on a handshake. How about that, huh? And so uh, we had 30 days to do it before the inspection and the closing. And uh, things were going pretty good initially until uh, we found out it turned out to be one of the, the rainiest days or months of the year in Lexington, South Carolina. And uh, if, you, if you know, if you've ever roofed a house or been involved in that, it's not, rain's not good because, you, you know, you tear off parts of the roof and the tar paper and then, you, you know, leaks and things are not good. So it was really hit or miss. And uh, I was in seminary at the time and working at the airport and running around and doing ministry. So it was really... It was pretty uh, scattered. It was tough. And uh, one morning I stopped by the house to see how it's doing. And I start walking through the rooms. And a couple of the rooms I see water spots on the ceiling. And I see drips coming into the light fixtures. Now, I'm not a home improvement expert. But I said, yeah, that's probably not good. So I get on the phone, start calling people. And everybody's working. Nobody's available. I finally think of my friend Al who works different shifts. I said, maybe, maybe Al. You know, so I call Al. And, and he wakes. He goes, hello. Yeah. And I said, hey, Tom, this is Al. Told him what's up. Go, oh, man. He goes, I just got off shift and climbed into bed. I go, oh, man, I forgot. You know, I forgot he, he was working night shifts. And I said, well, I'm sorry to bother you. You know, and just, you know, I'll, I'll find somebody else, right? And so I didn't know anybody else. I'd run out of options. This is before the days of cell phones. So, you know, didn't, you know just, I just didn't have a lot of options. I tried calling the church, and I think I got a voicemail. Isn't that great? I called the church, get a voicemail. Anyway, um, so I'm just, I'm trying to ponder it. I can't, to get up on a roof and spread, spread plastic around in the rain is, is not a safe thing to do, especially by yourself. Well, so I'm trying to stand in there wondering, and all of a sudden I hear a car pull up, hear a door slam, knock, and I open the door, and there's Al in his overalls saying, what do you need? I said, whoa, this dude got out of bed, drove about 20 minutes to my house, and we went up on the roof, we spread that plastic around, and got, got that leak stuck. That, that, that made a difference. That made a difference to me. And it got me back to a place of peace that I could go on. And somehow, believe it or not, we got that roof done. It was quite an experience. Um, this was before a lot was on the internet, you know. And I went to the public library and got a, a book, How to Roof Houses, right? The back was easy. It was all flat. But you get into those gables and eaves and all that stuff. Gets a little complicated. And I remember one of the pages I read, it says, as you're rolling out, they don't call it tar paper, they call it felt paper, right? As you're rolling out the paper, they said, look behind you every now and then 
to see where you're at on the roof. And I wonder how they, who was the first person discovered that was a good idea to look, look behind you as you're rolling out that paper. It was, it was a, a pretty incredible experience. We, we finished the roof and we had actually replaced some wood and do some painting the night before the in inspection. And by God's grace, we, we passed the inspection and bought that house. I went on Google Map and Google Earth yesterday, and I looked on that house. I found it online. I think it's 105 Cinnamon Lane, Lexington, South Carolina. And the roof still looks good. Now, I don't know if it's the same roof we put on there, but it looked good. It looked like the owner's taking care of the property. I was really, really happy about that. You know, and that, you know, my experience with the Leakin roof and my friend Al is not an isolated event on planet Earth. And you may identify with the, maybe an experience you've been through where either you've been in a crisis of some kind, somebody helped you, or maybe you had a situation where you helped somebody else out. And that, and that brings us to our first point in the outline. And if you haven't done so yet, if you look in your bulletin, there's a message outline that looks just like this. And we'll give you those words to fill in as we go along. And if you're using electrical device, smartphone or something, the back, bottom size of the outline gives you some information on how you can do that electronically if you'd rather follow along online or with your mobile device. Our first, our first point in the outline is, you know, all of us experience need, pain, and even crisis at various times in our lives. And how others respond to us during those times can make a world of difference. Whether we become better and get through that situation or become bitter and get a little more callous uh, toward life and, and other people. Fortunately for me, Al came through, and, and I ended up better in that experience, thanks to my friend, Al. You know, this morning we continue uh, in our series, Building Successful Relationship, on, on the topic of availability. Uh, if you're here last week, remember Randy was preaching about uh, interest. And this message really dovetails nicely because, you know, as Randy said, interest is one of the ways we practice a positive humility. Remember, he had a great line, I think it was from Rick Warren or somebody. He says, humility is not thinking less of myself, it's thinking of myself less. It's putting the interest of others, lifting them up, and, and having the attitude of Jesus, right? So this is a very, availability is, is one of the ways we do that. It's putting other people's interest and then taking some action when we see a need. You know, Scripture tells us, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ from Galatians 6.2. This is a well-known verse, and grammatically it's written as a present active Imperative. Imperative means it's a command. It's just not a nice idea, you know? And it's, it's active. It's in the present tense. It means to be ongoing. It's to be done now. And it's just not a nice idea. Uh, you may recall from our discussion of faith in the MOVE series on the book of James, uh, verse uh, 17 of chapter 4, it says, He who knows, he or she who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, it is sin. Wow, that, you know, that's a pretty powerful statement. It's just not a matter of doing what we're, you know, the yes, you know, commands or don't do the bad things. It's a matter of being proactive to show the love of God when we have that opportunity. And besides obeying God, there are additional benefits to fulfilling this command. Making room for others in our lifestyle to be available when another person is burdened, it not only lessens the load of their hardship, it also builds emotional bonds in relationships. You think my fondness of Al grew after we went through that experience together of 
spread in plastic in a rainstorm over a roof. Yeah, you know, we had to look out for each other. I almost slipped one time and fell off that roof. So, you know, I felt just it created an emotional bond. I'll give you another example. In January of 1990, my wife Julie was expecting our, our first child, Kaylee, and uh, we went through the Lamaze training. You all done that? Gone through the Lamaze training and the birthing, and you, you learn these breathing techniques, you know, the hee-hees and ha-has and the ha-ha, hee-hee, ha-ha, I think there's one in there. I can't remember them all. But, uh, you know, it was going to be a great experience. You know, her water breaks. We're at the hospital. We're in the room. All's going well. Well, I should tell you, it was an army hospital, by the way. Same hospital that she was born at in her life. I was in the Air Force, but we didn't have, we only had a clinic. So we had to go over to Womack Army Hospital at Fort Bragg. And everything's going fine, you know. The nurses weren't. I found out army nurses aren't the most compassionate, loving. They could use this message, I think. But other than that, you know, it was really, things were going fine. And, you know, Julie brought needlepoint alone, and they told us to bring a, a, a focal point. I don't know if you remember those, those couch potato dolls. You, could, you stuff little things. You put your TV guide in. Well, she got a couch tomato because she loves tomato. So I got this couch tomato. You're supposed to have a focal point. So I got her couch tomato stuck up in the corner of the room, and she's needlepoint, and we're just having a great time. And then about 10 hours into labor, uh, things aren't going so well, and... They got her up on the bed, rocking, like all fours. You ever seen a pregnant woman do that? That's, that's a sight. But, uh, you know, then things go on a little bit, and they're, they're monitoring heart rates and blood pressures and all this stuff, and all of a sudden, a doctor comes in and says, the baby's got to come out now. And that was scary. And uh, they had her, and I signed some paperwork. They wheeled her out. Army nurse comes in, get all this junk out of here. We need this room. Thank you for the compassion and understanding what I'm going through. So I had to get the stuff out, run it down in my car, and I get back inside, and I'm overwhelmed, you know. I, most of my family's in northern Illinois. I got a brother in Asheville, North Carolina, but that's four or five you know, hours away. I've got nobody, no family members. I call a gentleman in our church named George, an older guy that we kind of adopted. He was a widower. And I tell him what's going on. He says, Tom, do you want me to come over there? Yeah, I would like that. George shows up, and he stayed with me. He prayed with me, and until our daughter was born and safe, he was there. And praise God, she got through it. Turned out she also had some beta strept bacteria, and she didn't breathe when she came out. We didn't find that out for months later. Praise the Lord. I didn't need to know that. My wife had his daughter had spent about 10 days in the hospital, and our... our uh, Doctor worked it out so my wife could stay at the hospital with her, but she had to move from a semi-private room into a ward. You know they still have wards with like 20 people in them? Well, at least they did back then. So what was kind of cool about that, even through this whole experience, we ended up seeing some of the same people that we went through Lamaze with, you know? And so, you know, it was kind of a cool experience when it was all said and done. But George being present with me when I was overwhelmed, when I was in crisis, you know, I was in my uniform in an army hospital. This is before a cell phone. I'm in a pay phone in an Air Force uniform crying. You think I want these army guys to see me cry on the phone? It, you know, it was, a, it was a miserable situation. And George was there. He came through for me. And, and God, God got us through. And George did what Jesus tells us in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another 
even as I love you, that you love one another. And the interesting thing about this, this, this command of Jesus, it's really not a new commandment. We had already been told to love each other in the Old Testament, right? And yet it was not a new commandment, but to love like Jesus was profoundly new. You know, Jesus spoke to these words to his disciples after he washed their dirty feet, right, on the, the uh, night of the Last Supper. He, he spoke these words to them. And, and that's part of the point here is, you know, meeting another person's need or being with them in crisis isn't always convenient. It, it isn't always, you know, a nice task. Sometimes it's messy, you know, uh, to, to do this. And this new command you know, it was demonstrated by Jesus' life, and it was also illustrated in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that's what we're going to read, the first part of that from Luke 10, if you, if you want to follow along. Let me take a sip. Luke 10, beginning with 25, it says, A lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. End of the story, no. The, the lawyer, wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You know, knowing the two greatest commandments is good. Seeking to justify myself is not good. You know, Jesus commended the man for his answer and exhorted him to practice these commands. Yet that wasn't good enough for the lawyer. He had difficulty accepting the concept that eternal life was tied up with love and relationships. And he wanted to, Jesus to define this term neighbor in such a way, narrow enough that I can do it. I can achieve it on my own and be justified. I can be righteous. I can appear good to other people. He wanted to justify himself. He wasn't interested in the justification of God and what it truly means to be righteous. And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew his heart. The apostle Paul stated in 2 Corinthians, when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves by themselves, they are without understanding. It's the wrong measure. You know, there's a tendency in human hearts to measure a person's righteousness by their outward appearance and their actions in comparison to other people in our own community and cultures, okay? I do it, I'm guessing maybe occasionally, some of you may do it occasionally, but that's it's pretty much the human mortal condition. That's what we do. This type of comparison, the problem is it's relative. It usually leads to pride, I feel better than some, or to guilt, oh no, that person looks better than me or is doing more than me. Its focus is on self-justification. It's not about being available and meeting the needs of others. The focus is on me. It's not on God, and it's not about truly serving others. So Jesus gave this parable to illustrate what love loving a neighbor actually looks like. So I'm going to continue from uh, Luke chapter 10. If you want to follow along. It says, uh, Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him 
and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, the priest was going down on that same road. He saw the man and passed on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also came to that place, and he saw him, and he passed on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him, bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? It was quite obvious. And the lawyer responded, the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. I'd like to put a little context on the story by considering the location and terrain of Israel and during the first century. Take a look here. Um, a couple weeks ago, I had the privilege of, of being over in Israel. And uh, we went to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, see, the, here's the Dead Sea. Jerusalem's kind of parallel Dead Sea, almost centered between the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea, right? Jerusalem's right there. And Jericho is there. It's about 17 miles. I think that's it. Can anybody else see it? It's about 17 miles by foot. I think that's right about there. There, maybe there. It's one of those places, right about there. But anyways, it's about 17 miles by foot. Pretty good distance, but not, you know, not overwhelming. What, what makes it interesting is, is the terrain. And before I mention, go on about this, I went to Israel as a tourist, right? And you never know what God's going to do. Because the sound man over there, Jess Jones, he and I had a plan to baptize each other and going to baptize my wife. And that was it. Guess what? With the sound man's help, the two of us baptized about 12 people in the Jordan River. Is that incredible or what? You never know. I mean, that's, that's the cool thing. You never know what God's going to do. If you don't know the passage of Scripture, Ephesians 3, 20, 21, memorize it, meditate on it, pray through it. It says, now to him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask, think, or imagine to him be the glory in church in Christ Jesus to all generations. You pick up on that? Our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all I think or imagine. Is that, is that awesome? Is that awesome? How much, how, many, how much time do you spend talking to that God? How much time do you spend bringing your concerns to him? Praising him just because he's awesome and asking him, you know, to work in your life. We never know. We never know what God will do in answer to our prayer or, or when we open up our life. The next thing I, I want to show here, the 17 miles distance isn't that, uh, you know, isn't that difficult. You know, you could probably cover it in four or five days. But the difficulty is, if you look here, it's the terrain and the elevation here. Jerusalem's roughly 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho's about 800-some feet below sea level. If you do the math, that's a drop of over 3,300 feet. And this terrain is full of crevices and caves. It's a perfect hideout to robbers and thieves to take advantage of somebody. So it wasn't uncommon for people to be, you know, to be robbed and beat on that road. What was different, you know, 
what, what Jesus, you know, different was what made his story interesting is how the people responded to the wounded man, especially the Samaritan. If you know, the relationship between Jews and Samaritans was not great. And, you know, they, they thought, of, you know, Jews particularly thought of the Samaritans as probably dogs and, and, and under. And you'd, you'd imagine the Samaritans wouldn't have a great attitude toward the Jews either. So what was amazing was this Samaritan's behavior. So Jesus used this parable to illustrate what is true love, what is the righteousness that pleases God. He flipped the culture and the comparison game on his head, much like he flipped over the money changers' tables in the temple. And you know, he probably ruffled a few feathers in the process. The love that pleases God is that which springs from a compassionate heart. You know, Jesus gave us a new example to compare ourselves to. And, and even though the Good Samaritan is used, it's probably Jesus himself that's the comparison. It's not about our outward appearance and our religious activity. The priest, you know, he was one that worshipped in the temple, led people in sacrifices. The Levite, they were special people set apart. They maintained the facility and had certain rituals and requirements. So they were very religious. They, they wore certain clothing to identify them. You know, everybody would have thought of them being religious people. But what did they do on that road when they encountered the man in need? They avoided him, right? And, and if, you, if you chop this all down, you know, and there's, there's a lot of, you know, different applications, interpretations, but if you just take this passage and, and cut it to its core, what Jesus is teaching here, if we encounter a need, a legitimate need, right, and have the ability to meet it, then we probably should. Is that, is that reasonable? Is that simple enough? That's, that's I believe, what, what he's saying. Use our time, our resources, our skills to help meet that need. And referring back to our lessons from the book of James, from James 2, it says, What use is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith and no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and need of daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. And yet you do not give to them what is necessary for the body. What use is that? Even so, if, it, if faith, if it has no work, is dead being by itself. You know, good works, we know good works do not earn us salvation. Yet done in love, good works done in love demonstrate that I possess salvation and it's being manifested through my life. Do you see the difference? They don't earn it. They give it to us. And most of you may be familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It says, by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourself. It's a gift to God, not of works that nobody can boast. We shouldn't boast of our good works as though we're earning favor with God because we can't earn favor with God, you know, from our own efforts. The Bible is very clear that salvation is a gift to God. It's based on our belief and receiving Jesus Christ putting our faith in Jesus Christ based upon what he has done through us, through his life, death, his burial, and resurrection. And now he's ascended and he's interceding for us at the right hand of God. It's trusting our Savior for what he has done. And yet we know that God has created us for a purpose. And once we have 
receive salvation, once the Holy Spirit has made us alive, uh, we are equipped to do something. He does not set us free from sin to serve a selfish agenda. He died for us so we may live for him. Listen to verse 10, the next verse of Ephesians 2. It says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, right? I'm not saved by those good works, but once I'm saved, I can now fulfill the purpose for which God has created me. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should work in him. You ever think about that? God already has the plan for you. God always knows the purpose for which he has made you. Isn't that cool? I don't have to try to conjure up things. God knows what he wants me to do, and if I'm seeking him, it'll become more you know, apparent. It's not the question of whether we are to be available to meet the needs of others. The real question is where we are to focus our energies individually, corporately, in the community, in the church, among our family and friends. You know, Jesus said in Matthew, or excuse me, Mark 14, he said, for you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do them good, but you will not always have me. You know, in other words, he's saying there's always going to be needy people. There's always going to be more need than what we can meet, right? That's going to be an ongoing condition. It may not be what we want to hear, but that's just the fact of the human condition, and life on planet Earth. The needs will always overwhelm us, or they can overwhelm us, right? None of us can meet all the needs around us, right? Yet every one of us can serve to help somebody in need. You get the difference? Nobody can do it all, but each of us can do something, and all of us doing something, guess what? Stuff happens. It makes a difference. Isn't this the philosophy of Starfish Kenya? helping impoverished children in Nairobi. You know, there are probably thousands more children that they'd like to help, and they can't at this point help them all. But guess what? There's two, three hundred plus children they are making a difference for. Some of us could use actually, oh, it's too overwhelming, I can't do anything. What difference is it gonna make? No, to the one we help, just like the starfish thrown back into the water, to the one or hundreds we help, it does make a difference. It makes a difference to them. It helps those little kids from becoming bitter, callous, and maybe dying on the streets to the difference between having a home and love and hearing about Jesus Christ who has a purpose for them. It makes a huge difference. Are we going to help people get better or are we going to let them be bitter? One of the ways we know what God wants us to do is found in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Five, three through five. I read this a lot when we have a celebration of life service at Gateway to, to bring comfort to our grieving. And we actually have a card printed up called a comfort card that's available after the service you want. And it has this passage on it. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. Listen to this. Why does God comfort us? Verse four. Comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. Do I want comfort and joy from God just so I can have warm fuzzies to feel good and Jesus loves me? Praise the Lord. That's great. But if it doesn't go any further than that, I am not fulfilling the purpose 
why God has put it in my heart. He says we are comfort ourselves by God, right? So that we can comfort others with the same comfort. You know, there's a saying, song isn't a song till you sing it, a bell isn't a bell until you ring it. Love wasn't put in your heart to stay. What's the rest of it? Love isn't love until you give it away. Folks, if our Christian faith is all about what I'm getting out of it, I'm not getting it, okay? God saves us, redeems us, fills us, empowers with his spirit and goodness to have an impact on a world that's pretty screwed up, in my opinion. Maybe, maybe you all don't see that side of things. We need light. We need you and me out there showing the light of Jesus Christ to a dark world, or they're going to continue in their downward spiral of darkness. It's that pretty simple, you know? We're salt and light. If you don't put salt on that meat sitting on the counter and leave it out long enough, what happens? That's what's happening to the world around us. We're not salt preserving. If we're not being light, bringing goodness and hope, stuff will continue to decay. We have the answer. We have the life of Jesus Christ. Are people seeing it? Are we willing to get outside our comfort zones to comfort others? We typically are most experienced or most effective helping others in the same areas that we have experienced help from others and from God. I'll give you an illustration of that. My wife, Julie, oversees the Christmas outreach program. We do at Gateway each year at Christmas time. And uh, I'm very proud of her. I'm glad she does this. She collects funds <clears throat> from people and people make donations and we find out about children and families in need that don't have much finances to, to enjoy Christmas, right? So somewhere along the line, I usually end up helping her in this, in this effort, right? And I do it sometimes reluctantly, even though it's a thrill to, to work in the church and serve Jesus. You know, when I, when I do it for a living and I, I start getting requests from family and friends beyond, but by faith, I do it, right? I try to have a good attitude and I do it. So I usually end up helping her in this effort. And uh, sometimes we get in situations and Christmas of 2014, some of the requests that came in were for six bicycles, six children's bicycles, right? And so I got a hold of James Huckabee, and he's got a pickup truck, and he's going to meet us at Walmart. <clears throat> and so we get back in the toy section. We identify these six bicycles. I lift them off the racks, and I get them all lined up in the aisle. And you say, well, what's the problem, right? Six bicycles, there's three of us, and we can each roll two bicycles, right? Simple? I didn't tell you the whole story. My wife had foot surgery about a week or so before, and she's on a knee scooter. James Huckabee just happened to have a heart transplant a couple months before that, and he can't exert himself. He, he, can, he can drive a truck, but he, that's about it, right? So here's me, six bicycles in the children's aisle, toy aisle at Walmart, right, thinking what I'm going to do. Being the great man, of faith, great man of faith I am, I know in the automotive department there is an exit. I could slip away, catch an Uber home. Problem solved, right? Well, my wife, I want my wife to be ticked off at me the rest of my life. Yes, I could have done that. No, I say, okay, I got to do something. So I started looking around for those associates that never seem to be around when you need them. And I find a guy, but he says, no, I don't work in the toy department, but I'll find somebody for you. Right, this guy's going to find some for me, right? Believe it or not, he did. He actually brought another, you know, associate, and I thought he's going to take off. And, you know, he said, no, well, he said, we'll help you get the bikes up to the front. 
Praise the Lord. So both of them, wow, that's how cool is that? Both of them stayed with us. And we got the bicycles up to the register. We paid. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, now somehow we got to get them through that. Now to the parking lot, this and that. And they say, Where, where's your vehicle parked? I said, well, James tells them it's out a little bit on the right, down that aisle. I said, well, we'll, we'll take out the bicycles for you. Really? Yes. So we all roll the bicycles out the truck. We get to the truck, and, you know, James isn't supposed to do anything. So one of us drops the tailgate, and I say, guys, this man can't exert himself. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump up into, you know, to the bed, and you guys, will you please lift the bikes up to me. They agree. And James, if you know James Huckabee, right, he sees an opportunity to witness here. James says, that's right. He pulls up his shirt, right, in the Walmart parking lot. Here's James. Look at my scar. He shows people, he's showing these guys to see his scar where God gave him a new heart. Do you know what James calls his heart? He calls it David. David, a man after God's own heart. Isn't that cool? This messy situation that I didn't really care to be involved with has now worked actually pretty well. James has given witness to guys in the parking lot of Walmart with his shirt up, and we got these bicycles for these kids, you know? Yes, it was inconvenient, it's outside my comfort zone, but praise the Lord, you know? It has a happy ending, right, to it. So what do you think? You know, with that said, with the thought that we're, we're often effective in the same areas where we have received help, what do you think motivates my wife? I want to tell you a story. She's probably going to be embarrassed about it. So don't tell her I told you. She grew up in a military family of nine children. Small house, nine children. When Christmas rolled around, guess what? They often didn't have the funds to get nice gifts. And it was somewhat embarrassing. You know, the friends and the classmates talking about all they got. She didn't get much. This is the part, keep this confidential. One year, she said her dad hocked his wedding band, actually. Took his wedding band and hocked it at a pawn shop so they could have money to buy gifts, right? What do you think motivates my wife? When she sees a child in need, something stirs. Something stirs in her. Compassion, okay, folks? That's what it's about. It's not about religious activity, doing stuff, trying not to be guilty, and not doing enough. It's about letting the compassion of God stir and recognize, you know, where he has helped me, I can actually probably help some others. I have the honor of overseeing the uh, care and prayer ministries here at Gateway. And, you know, what do you think? Who would you guess lead the small groups and volunteer at Celebrate Recovery? Who would you guess? Would it, would it be those people that have received help in their own hurts, hang-ups and habits, and been touched by God and they're grateful and now they're giving back to help others? Could that possibly be it? How about our grief share ministry, Tish Taylor and Benton White and uh, Diane McGuire? You know, each one of them have experienced profound grief and loss in their lives. And guess what? They're now giving back and helping people walk those same roads. Same thing. Our divorce care ministry, Connie and Jim, guess what they've been through? They've been through from divorces. How about our brain injury support group, Kurt and Matthias? What do you think Kurt's been through? Brain injury. He rebuilt his life back from nothing after a couple of months of being in a coma. And now he's given hope 
to others. How about these folks are going to be down front and pray with you if I stop talking at some point, right? They, they care. They've been touched by God's love, and they care, and they want to minister to others. How about the people that serve in our comfort ministry? You know, we have a comfort ministry here. It's kind of behind the scenes. But we, we serve. We have a, a celebration in life when a, we have a funeral, somebody loses a loved one. If we're able, we often provide just a simple meal, a reception afterward to help that family, lighten the load, and provide a place of fellowship and care for them before people rush on with their business. How about people who make visits to hospital and are homebound folks? Why do they do it? There's other ministries of Gateway that, that reach out to our community and our homeless. If you talk to Charlotte Osmond or Gina Evans in our office here, they'd be pleased to hook you up and shine some of that light and make a difference. How about our, our, our children and our nursery ministry? It's almost ongoing we have needs for people down there. Have you ever thought the difference you can make just spending a couple hours a week helping make a difference in a child's life? How about our, our middle school and our high school students? You know, Mike Lively will be leaving here in just over a life, you know, just over a month, excuse me, I think over a life. Uh, I think it's July, uh, July 15th, somewhere around there. Mike's going to be leaving us. Do you think Roland, our, you know, other youth minister, do you think he's got some concerns? Do you think he might have some needs to help some of these young people? Is there something you could do that God would have you do in these areas? Or just in our personal lives? You know, none of us can do everything, but all of us can do something, whether it's in our family, our community, our church, workplace, wherever it is. Two great questions to ask ourselves. What are the areas in my life in which God has helped me, both directly through his word, through his spirit, but also he works through other people's lives, right? Just like we said. Who are those people in your family, your church, your community, your world that need your help that you can give? And how can you help them? It's pretty simple. And although it's not always convenient and easy, it takes us outside our comfort zone. Serving others and the church, it builds relational bonds and friendships. I started serving in the church even before I really came to faith. And uh, I found, as I kept doing that, that I found some of the best people are those who are serving in the church. I make some of my best friendships that way. I tell my kids, not all Christians or not all people who say they're a Christian necessarily make a great friend. But my best friends, the ones I know I can count on in a time of need, they are Christians. They're all Christians. Most of them I met while was serving a higher purpose than myself. At the end of this month, uh, Tilak Papu, you know Tilak? Tilak Papu, there's a lot of Tilak Papus around. You may not be the same one. But Tilak Papu, he was a fellow seminary student from East India. And uh, we, we, made, we made friends in school and our church in, in, in Columbia and Lexington. South Carolina, and uh, uh, T-Lock's son is getting married at, at the end of this month, and he's asked us to come to Lexington, South Carolina. The same church that I did my internship at, Riverbend Community, and the same pastor, Robbie McAllister, right? I did my internship under Robbie McAllister. Robbie has a great heart. He doesn't just stay at Riverbend Community Church. Right now, he is organizing trips to Greece to serve the refugees coming out of Syria and other places in the, the Mideast. And I said, Robbie, what do you do there? He said, well, we basically, we feed them, we, we wash, we clean up. We, it's, you know, it's really service. It's kind of the things Jesus did. 
And he says, if for some reason they ask us, why are you doing this? Then we have a chance to tell them, well, because Jesus, right? It's pretty simple. And, uh, uh, you know, that may sound exotic going to Greece, but guess what? A couple weeks ago, a fight broke out between the Kurds and another ethnic group, and it turned to violence. And uh, many of the workers had to flee from that camp for a while. Guess what? Robbie's going back. He's going back in September. So if any of y'all want to go along, my wife wants to go. I don't know if I'm going to go. She's more compassionate than I am. But uh, um, if you want to go, but isn't that cool? Those friendships I made back in the 90s, you know, four or five states away, are still very meaningful. And we get together, it's like we pick up right where we left off. Most of us serve for a higher purpose. You know, my friends Al and George I talked about, they've passed on, right? Just like we will. But their impact has not, right? That's our life. We got one shot at it. Our impact does not pass on if we do it in the love of Jesus. Another added benefit of being available is the impact it has on a watching world. After Jesus said, love one another as you love yourself, he said, by this, or you love one another as I loved you, he said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. You realize that? It's not so much the, always the impact we have on those outside. It's the love we show to one another as believers in Jesus Christ that people see a dynamic that they don't have. And that's what draws them to Jesus Christ. Isn't that powerful? How we treat each other is huge. Practice and availability is a means of evangelism to bring others to Christ. When people see the love of Christ through us, they are drawn to him. At the conclusion of the service, our prayer partners will be bound front. If you want to talk and pray with somebody, that's what they're here. We have a whole, we have about 10 different of these promised prayer cards on all different topics, like peace, you know, and hope and stuff we need. Uh, so they have a topic and scripture on one side, and the back side, they have a prayer, just a sample prayer, how to take a passage of scripture and pray it back to God. And folks, that's faith. God's word is his revelation to us. Our response to him is faith, right? Just taking a passage of scripture, praying through it, say, God, I believe this and I need it. You know, we'll be glad to pray with you, but if you take this with you, take two or three of these with you and start reading and praying through them during this week, you never know what God's going to do. Don't wait for another Sunday to come around. Practice your faith every day. If you're new to Gateway and just want to say hello at the end of the service, I'll be out there called the First Steps area with some friendly folks from Gateway. Love to say hello to you. If you're uh, wanting to grow in your you know, faith and want some more resources, resources, head out that door right over there, our next step area. There's some friendly folks there. Be, be glad to help you out and, and do that. And uh, I hope uh, you've been touched today, not because, you know, some nice things I may have said, but because of God's truth and the reality of his presence, his word, his truth, his spirit are right here. You bow with me. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this day. What a great honor it is to be here. Uh, thank you for the honor it is to be associated with you in any manner whatsoever. I give you praise and Lord, I'm truly blessed and grateful. I pray for each of us here, Lord, that somehow, someway, your spirit, your truth will touch us. God, you know the people around us, Lord. You know the needs. Father, somehow, in, in your magnificent work, stir our hearts. Give us 
that extra compassion, the grace to slow down, Lord, see needs, Lord. We know you've given us much, Lord, and you say much is required. So help us be good stewards. Help us to serve you, Lord. All of us want to hear when we leave this world that, that you are pleased, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of your master. And may it be so, in Jesus' name. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.